Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Throughout my early career as a biologist, one of the things I was really interested in was going to places that people weren't really going otherwise, and then just figuring out what was there in terms of what, what, what birds were there, what animals were there and stuff. So I ended up having unbelievable adventures through my career as a biologist. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 64 with Dr. Niall McCann. Niall is a biologist and explorer who works on the front line of conservation. In this episode, Niall talks about his standout adventures, his recovery from a near-fatal speed-flying accident, and the importance of conservation for the future. I've been speaking to Niall online for a very long time about all sorts of ideas and schemes, but we've never actually managed to meet in person. We've still yet to manage it, and as is usually the case at the moment, we recorded this chat online. A quick disclaimer, this episode, like most of the conversations we release, is an informal chat. There's a little bit of rude language and some fairly adult themes in this one. Nothing major, but maybe not one for the school run. Before we begin, I want to mention our ongoing partnership with Sidetrack magazine. There's nothing formal about it and there are no contracts in place, we're just on similar journeys, moving forward with a passion for telling honest and authentic stories of adventure and exploration. So if you like the idea of adventure podcast style storytelling in the form of a beautiful journal filled with some of the world's finest adventure photography, then head to sidetrack.com. Okay, over to Dr. Niall McCann. Let's start with the obvious. You know, who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? What does that mean to you? I'm Niall McCann and I live in South Wales, very happily. I'm British-ish, so I'm kind of a British and Irish lion. The only part of Britain that I'm not actually genetically from is Wales, so I've made up for that by living here. But then I was I was actually born in Canada and have quite an interesting Canadian heritage because my grandfather was the director of the Arctic Institute of North America and professor of geography at McGill University. He was one of the pioneering explorers of Baffin Island. Mount Asgard was first summited by an expedition that he led. And Doug Scott, who died a couple of weeks ago, used to stay with my grandparents whenever he was going out to Baffin Island. So I have that kind of interesting heritage from from my mum's side. My mum 
her first big expedition was age 14 to Baffin Island for six weeks as camp cook on one of her dad's expeditions. And she was there like making the porridge for all these hardened, bearded, grizzled explorers who are doing glaciology and mountaineering and stuff. So she, she comes from this unbelievable background. And then my dad was from like a poor Irish Catholic background, but he bloody loved wildlife. He loved wildlife and loved getting out and camping and doing exciting things and was quite academic. So that led him down doing a degree in zoology. And then he took on a job with the British Antarctic Survey and spent two and a half years living in Antarctica without coming out at a time when there were no women allowed down into Antarctica, which, yeah, God. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know whether this goes out before the watershed, but it was quite funny. Uh, I, 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 my dad died a few years ago, five years, uh, seven years ago. We've been in touch about this. And I've subsequently been given by his brother the letters, the correspondence between the two of them from when dad first went down and spent his two and a half years. And there was a policy in the Antarctic survey that they would never allow anyone to spend any time at any of the bases alone. They had to be in a pair at the very least or, or in a group. And principally that was there as, as a safety, just in case someone had a heart attack or something else went wrong, that there's always a backup. But dad said he thought the real reason was that they were terrified that any of the men left there by themselves would masturbate themselves to death within a few days. <laughs> so that's why they did it. But anyway, so, so my, my dad's background was um, kind of inauspicious start in County Armagh, South Armagh in Ireland, and then got into wildlife, went and worked for the Antarctic Survey, and that was the making of him. Really got into doing adventures and exploration, very international history. So, so when me and my brothers were brought up, we had both of my parents having come from these really interesting backgrounds and also being professional biologists. So from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be a biologist. And even through various points of my career where I've, I've deviated and done things that weren't biology, I've always said, oh, I'm a biologist. I just happen to be doing this for, for, for the time being. So who am I, Niall McCann? How do I define myself as a biologist with a lot of other interests? And I guess the the obvious place to go is what are those other interests? Because they're fairly extensive, right? Yes. Yes, they're fairly extensive. So from a young age, I was really worried that I was an absolute wimp. <laughs> I had this like, really tough dad and my mum had done these amazing things and my brothers were really strong and ripped and I was terrified of everything and I spent a lot of my 20s overcompensating for that self-doubt and really got into doing good hard expeditions so really nice um, and a whole mix of disciplines so I suppose my entry drug into all this was, was rock climbing like lots of people first got, got, enjoyed climbing in North Wales. We lived in Shropshire, so North Wales was just around the corner. Got into climbing quite a lot. And then first big expedition was actually cycling. So straight after my A-levels, when all of my mates went off to Magaluf and those types of places, I flew to Kazakhstan with my dad and one of his mates. And we spent a month cycling through the Tian Shan, then into China, through the Pamirs, over the Karakoram Highway, so Kundrab Pass, down into northern Pakistan. So seeing or cycling through three of the great ranges in the Himalayas, absolutely superb. Spent a month doing that and was hooked on long, hard expeditions because um, I was never very technically good at stuff. I was never a great technical climber, but I've climbed Half Dome and uh, had an 
unsuccessful attempt on the nose. I was ne never a very good cyclist, but I've done two cycling trips that have gone over the Himalayas. Never I've never rode, never rode an indoor rowing machine or an outdoor rowing boat for that matter. And then I rode across the Atlantic Ocean. I've never cross country skied and then skied across Greenland. So lo lots of these things I've, I've, I've really enjoyed doing despite a total lack of expertise. <laughs> and did that matter, the lack of expertise? To an extent. With, like, with the ocean row, you have to train so hard to get prepared for it that you, you, you get quite good at rowing before you actually leave. So we, we spent a year almost to the day of training. and got really fit, very strong. We got to know the boat inside out. Skiing, I didn't know very well. But when you're manhauling, you really don't need to ski very well. The only awkward part is... You've spent time in Greenland. Um, it's it's parabolic, so it's really steep on either side and it's flat in the middle. And the, the steep part when you're coming down into the, into the west coast is when you actually need to be able to ski. <laughs> so that's the point when your sled comes and takes your legs from underneath you. That was the only time when I actually need any skiing skills. Otherwise, it's just belligerence and you're, you're walking with skis on your feet. Yeah, okay. And do you think that people need permission to go and do these things in a kind of... And not in a literal sense, but like permission from ourselves. I mean, I think, go on, sorry. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think that's the biggest barrier to most people is thinking that the barrier for entry is too high, that, that you need to be climbing as hard as Leo holding in order to go and do a rock climbing trip to California. Well, you don't at all. Or that you need to be a, a Garrett Thomas in order to go and do a cycling trip when hey, you could stick some panties on your bike at your home and go and have an amazing adventure in a day or two. I think one of the things that my parents really encouraged was that adventure is accessible and that you can have adventure from home. You can go camping just in, in, the, in the valleys nearby. We live next to the Long Mind. Just go and spend the night camping in the Long Mind when you're six years old and you're having an amazing adventure there. Adventure was just was always accessible. And so doing really big things like big wall climbing or ocean rowing or polar skiing never seemed that much of a stretch. Because I, I never felt there was such a barrier for entry. I think that is, I mean, you know, we're going to dive in deep quickly here, but it's such a recurring theme with these conversations and something that I find, you know, huge power in at 32 years old is you can go and do this. And I don't, you know, we don't need to turn this into a self-help lecture, but I think that people just don't realize generally that they're allowed to go and do whatever they want. And you don't have to be a sponsored athlete or Alex Honnold to go and, you know, expedition. I mean, what does expedition mean to you? Yeah, tough one. So an expedition for me is a trip where its outcome is not predefined. So that could be, you can have an expedition at home very easily, but if, if you already know exactly how it's going to go and you can predict this is going to be fine, I'm going to go from here to here and this will happen there. It's not really an expedition. I think when, when there's an element of jeopardy involved, then it's more of an expedition. But I don't know whether that's a really wishy-washy definition. <laughs> no, no, that no, that works. I mean, th that's the whole, you know, I think that's the subject for a book that hasn't been written yet is what's the difference between expedition, adventure, exploring, you know, it's, yeah, it's complicated. Okay, so, I mean, there's so many different places I would like to go with this, but what have been the kind of um, standout adventures and expeditions over the last however many years? There's been there's been a few and it's there's been more than, than there would otherwise have been because throughout my early career as a biologist, 
one of the things I was really interested in was going to places that people weren't really going otherwise and then just figuring out what was there in terms of what, what, what birds were there, what animals were there and stuff. So I ended up having unbelievable adventures through my career as a biologist, my, my, my PhD. I spent in total about a year in Honduras and one of those one of those trips we went out to a place where there was no record of people ever having been before at all and we spent two and a half days cutting our own trail to get into the middle of this place i found an obsidian arrowhead underneath a bush while cutting our own trail and obviously took that home and had an, uh, an archaeologist and anthropologist look at it and he said well no that, that's pre-mayan that's over 800 years old and when I looked into it a bit more, there's no obsidian volcanoes in Honduras. So that must have been traded from Guatemala or El Salvador. And then over the course of however many years, we're talking tens, scores, hundreds of years, traded down into, into Honduras. And then I'd love to know the story of that, that little arrowhead. Like, did it start life out as an axe head and then slowly get whittled down to a spear and then an arrowhead? How many people was it shot into? How many tapirs? Because that's what I was there working on. What on earth happened to mean it ended up lying underneath the bush that I found it under in 2012? What is the story of that arrowhead? Wouldn't it be make a great novel if you could chart the history of that arrowhead? Why do you care? Oh, I think it's got such, I don't know, something intrinsically fascinating for me is going to places where there's no record of people having been before, but there are. And there has been people there. And we know that pre-Columbus, pre-1492, there was complex civilizations with massive lines of trade all the way through the Americas. And yet that's kind of forgotten because we, we think of, of the founding fathers as being your first generation. That, that, that neglects tens of thousands of years of civilization. And I don't use that term lightly. Right? Deeply civilized, complex societies but then they're also warring and living in this amazing environment that I'm now seeing in a t totally different context. And like, an arrow is a, that's, a, that's a thing of war or a thing for hunting. So again, that kind of speaks to a lot of human history. And I'd love to know what the history of that arrow is. Like, we, could, we could figure out which volcano it came from using stable isotope analysis. The rest of it you'd have to make up. But <laughs> who knows, as a retirement project, I might write that story. Yeah, that's how stories work, right? It's just a little bit of yeah, there's always a bit of mystery. So you're a biologist who's interested in human history, which is anthropology. <laughs> yeah, if I if I had lots of lives, I'd, I'd have done multiple careers, but I've only got the one and decided that biology was the most important thing for me. And not research biology, it's conservation. It's trying to stop people destroying the planet, <laughs> basically. So I started off life as, a, as an academic where you're, you're, you're researching stuff. And what I, what I was researching were endangered species. And it's quite depressing being a researcher of endangered species because you, you watch them sliding off a cliff. And so I made the conscious decision to leave academia and get into conservation to try and stop species going extinct in the first place. And it was the right place for me to be emotionally. And I felt the best use of my energies. For some people, that research position is absolutely the best use of their talents. It's not for me. I'm not a good enough statistician. But I also was much more passionate about stopping the killing in the first place. So I got into anti-poaching. But I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get down that later on. But yeah, so to return to your, your, your original question, a lot of my expeditions 
as a biologist were really formative. So the first one that I organized myself, I think so anything like that is key. When you organize your own expedition, I did a seven week expedition to Bolivia in the summer of my second year as an undergrad. So I'd have been 21, 22. And that was looking for giant otters, a, a massive otter that lives in the Amazon, six foot long otter. And they were thought to be critically endangered. And I was doing an exercise to try and figure out whether that was true or not. And then to map an area that hadn't been mapped before and see whether there were any giant otters there too. So the fact that I organized that by myself, that was massively influential, really important, hugely formative. Then the next one of that kind of level of importance was a return to look for more otters <laughs> of the giant kind in northern South America, Guyana. Um, so near Roraima, um, where you're quite familiar with, um, if you go into central Guyana, District 9, it's a river called the Rewa River, and basically hardly anyone had been up there. And me and my friend Rob Pickles, who at the time was researching giant otters, we decided to go up there and sample otters, but then do a full inventory of everything else that was there as well. And that was the first biodiversity study to have been done there. We spent six weeks up there catching your own food, um, Amerindian guides, all of this type of stuff, phenomenal. And during that time, we caught an 18 foot, two inch long anaconda. And that fo the photograph of that 18 foot, two inch anaconda has then opened a lot of other doors <laughs> since then. So in terms of formative expeditions, not only was that amazing just because it was a wonderful adventure being in the middle of nowhere, seeing animals that have never seen humans before and seeing them react to a person for the first time, like we're a massive upright monkey. And how is an animal, a wild animal supposed to re respond to a massive upright monkey that's making strange sounds at each other? It's, it's quite, quite an interesting thing to, to, to experience. So that was a yeah, wonderful exhibition for many, many reasons. But then also that the photograph of that snake has kind of done the rounds and opened up doors that got me into the television world and, and that type of stuff. So th those are really important. And then in terms of the, the non-biological expeditions and a more classic adventure, that first one to cycle the Karakoram Highway, like, again, your first expedition, that's, that's it's going to be your favourite in a way or the most significant in a way because it, it teaches you that this is what you really want to do. Or the opposite, this is the worst thing in the world. Why the hell would I want to put myself through this? Frost inside my bivy bag at four and a half thousand meters, sleeping beneath the Kudra Pass. But all good, I loved it and wanted to do more of it. So then after that, rowing the Atlantic was massive because it's really difficult <laughs> to spend over two months at sea not really knowing whether you're going to get to the other side or not at any point. It's quite, yeah, quite a worrying position to be in. But then there's moments of serenity, like wonderful serenity as well. It's, yeah, that was very significant. Um, skiing across Greenland was, was an amazing thing because it was two of us. We felt really alone. Um, you, you get hit by a pitterack, the catabatic storm, that type of stuff. Quite strong bonding experiences when you're in those conditions, as you know. And then the last kind of major expedition I did was with my brother back into Eastern Greenland again um, from Kulasuk. And it was to combine ski mountaineering with speed flying. So we, were, we went into this amazing valley. It was awesome. So we landed in Kulasuk and we met a guy with a skidoo 
and he took us two hours by skidoo to the edge of the sea ice. And then we met a guy with a boat. He took us two hours by boat to where the sea ice uh, jutted up into a fjord. And then we skied for five hours until we got to a place that looked like a nice campsite, which we'd scoped out on Google Earth before. And, and we got there like, yeah, this, this looks nice. We made camp, set up our polar bear tripwire and spent the next two weeks just climbing, climbing whatever we fancied that day, depending which way the wind was going, flying off the summits. Um, with our with our speed wings and and then coming back to the tent again and then we'd arranged to meet the guy in the same place two weeks later without us speaking Greenlandic or him speaking English just write the, n- the number of fingers and here <laughs> and he agreed <laughs> he was there two weeks later which was amazing <laughs> yeah so that that was a, a really that was an incredible experience because like s- speed flying off mountains that don't have names was 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 quite amazing being there with my brother was brilliant. He's a genuinely talented athlete, so he drags me up stuff. <laughs> he was an E8 climber, and um, yeah, it's a hard, hard rock, very hard mixed and and winter climbing as well. So really talented athlete, and much better at speed flying than me. Um, hence, I was one that had the serious accident, and, and he wasn't. But I'm sure we'll get into that <laughs> in, in, in in time. But yeah, it was a wonderful experience, an amazing expedition, and yeah, just to see to see. That part of Greenland in those conditions, like spring spring conditions, it's just superb, superb. And is there an element of ancestral? I um, I'm a big believer in you know we all we're all seeking for place. We're all looking for a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. And with your you know grandfather being who he was, do you think there's a sense of seeking something out by going to these places? Definitely, I feel. I don't know whether it's carrying the burden of my ancestry or whether it's wanting to carry the torch of my ancestry. Uh, I think it's, it started out as feeling like a burden in that I had this, this family history of my grandfather and then both of my parents really that, that had done such, such a diversity of amazing things that I felt that was a burden to carry. But then when I got into it myself really in my late teens and early 20s, no longer felt like a burden it, it, it felt like an honor to be taking this on and continuing that that legacy and now being the torchbearer in a way and now i've got my daughter who's nearly two years old i, I can't wait to pass the torch on to her and kind of help help her through her passage as, as dad did with us so when when each of us finished our a-levels our reward was to go on an expedition with dad so as opposed to getting like go out for a meal or get get a present an xbox whatever it is we got to go on an expedition so i got to cycle the karakoram highway my brother rory got to canoe the yukon and my brother finn got to cycle the Kardang la which is the highest road in the world and that's a pretty awesome thing to do as, as a reward for passing your a-levels and absolutely i'll be doing the same with phoebe but i'll probably start nursery school so, so <laughs> whatever her first qualification is right we're, we're off to france to go climb something or <laughs> whatever it is yeah that's wonderful no, I understand that. Yeah, it's interesting, the whole burden versus torch-bearing element. Well, we've got poaching, we've got accidents, we've got all sorts we can discuss, but what's your job? My job, mainly, because uh, again, I, I kind of I moonlight a bit, but my main job day-to-day is I am the Director of Conservation for National Park Rescue, who are British-based organisation that I helped to start, helped to found, who identify national parks in Africa that cannot cope with the poaching crisis and try and rescue and resuscitate them. So that must be incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. 
Yes, it's great. Yeah, it can be incredibly challenging because when I'm in the field, I see dead elephants and I see the consequences of breakdowns in conservation. But then on the flip side of that, I'm, I've been involved in completely resuscitating a national park from one that was on the brink of being degazetted, it was failing so badly, to now thriving and having a team of 31 people hired from the local communities that are now protecting their own park that all report into me. I think that those types of things, it's very much, you see these tragic, tragic images which I see personally, but then you have these amazingly, almost euphoric moments when you see the, the, the fruits of those labours, seeing that elephant poaching is down by 90% in two years, that we've got 31 people that are working every single day dedicated to us that we've hired from the communities that border with the park. All of that type of stuff is amazingly satisfying. Um, and also knowing that we're disrupting one of the most serious organised crimes on earth, the illegal wildlife trade is worth anything up to 23 billion a year. That puts it fourth only to the smuggling of guns, drugs, or people. Illegal wildlife trade is then not too far beneath those, those three major organized crimes, and it's the same people that are involved. So on the ground, you might have a relatively poor villager as a trigger puller, but they're then selling onto the middleman who's selling onto the really big guy, and these are the same guys that are running people across international borders. And having the chance to disrupt those networks and then influence conservation at home and abroad. That's, a, I think, a really important mission for me and something I'm really lucky to be able to do. This, for me, feels like, you know, let's get here in a minute, and I really would love to dig into all of this. Um, but first, because obviously we're talking about formative, you know, um, what made you who you are today, could you talk to me about the accident? Yes. So I was two years into speed flying, my brother came up with the idea, he kind of sent me an email saying, no, I found our next hobby and sent me a couple of videos of uh, like Valentin Deluc and these other extraordinary speed fly athletes from, from the Alps. And I was like, wow, this looks great. Forgetting entirely that, that my physical competence was always really low. <laughs> Finn, my brother's this, this, this phenomenal athlete, but I, I was always kind of yeah, muddling along. So he'd lead and I'd come up afterwards. And that, that trip out to Greenland was really early in my flying days. So it was kind of on a bit of a, yeah, winging it really. But then spent the next two years flying a little bit more and had probably got about 60 flights under my belt. And I made the mistake of trying to fly above my skill level. So my skill level was still quite low. Uh, I was a slower learner than my brother anyway. His skill level, his skill level was naturally higher and he'd had a few more flights, but my skill level was still quite low. But I was wanting to buzz the ground so that's one of the thrills of speed flying is being relatively close to the ground and that thrill of going at 50 miles an hour, a few feet above a rock face. It's, it's, it feels amazing. But rock faces are unforgiving <laughs> and, and you need to be good at flying. What I should have done was spend 200 flights just taking it easy, just getting to know everything about my, my wing and how it works and exactly how the winds are working and how my body weight affects the way it moves and I wasn't doing that I was trying to fly too close to the ground too quickly and I'd had a couple of close calls landed in the top of a tree twice and I'd hit the ground once and yeah had it turns out you can get a huge amount of blood to come out of your thigh <laughs> as, it, as it turns out yeah it was a crazy incident actually and so yeah, we were flying really close to the ground. And my wing got unstable. It's very strange. It started to wobble like that, and I was wobbling underneath it. it. Hit me into the ground, and, and I rolled. And I must have rolled over a rock. 
because the surgeon told me that there were scratch marks on my femur, uh, which I, I found out that, yeah, when I woke up out of out surgery. I didn't know that at the time. So uh, I lay there and my brother came over to where I was and we looked at my leg and then it just went glug, a, a, a glug of blood came out of, uh, of my thigh. So I instantly clamped it with my hand and uh, called 999 and I was taken out by seeking and uh, then found out that, yeah, I'd scratched my femur and, and, and all of that. But, but ostensibly I was, I was fine apart from losing, um, losing all of my ITB. I no longer have an ITB on my, on my left leg. Yeah, it stops there, uh, which is bizarre. And yeah, weird. <laughs> I have to show you sometime. It's very strange. Then got back into flying and eight weeks later flew off the top of um, Glidervach down into Llanberis Pass in, snow, in winter and landing in the snow. And then eight weeks after that, flew off the s summit pyramid of Snowdon, down back, essentially, um, well, well, straight off <laughs> where, where, you, where you can't walk, between the Watkin Path going one way and the pig track going the other. We went straight down the middle, landed by the second lake. So that, that, was, that was pretty amazing. And then did a few more flights here in, in South Wales and was just looking forward to a summer of flying when the winds picked up perfectly to fly the, the big north face of Penavan, so the highest mountain in South Wales. And the winds were coming straight onto the face. We could see that on the, uh, on the weather app. So my brother and I, we, we, we met, we hiked up. Uh, I went to the toilet at uh, the bottom, 9.30 in the morning. And that was the last time I went to the toilet for 21 days and 12 hours, <laughs> just for, for perspective. But anyway, so yeah, hiked up to the top. Got, got our wings out, figured out the, figured out the winds, and uh, I took off first. Finn's canopy collapsed just as he was about to take off, so he, so he didn't, whereas mine was fine, and, 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 and I took off. I must have just been yeah, s slightly further to one side where the wind was just coming a bit more pure. His must have just hit a little, little vortex, so his canopy collapsed, and he stayed on top, and I, I went down. And I, I set off, and I was trying to fly quite close to the face, starts vertically, and then... Um, it's reverse parabolic, yeah, levels off. And I took, went 90 degrees left, 180 degrees right, and then went to make a 180 degree left turn again, but made about 200 degrees, and suddenly realized I was, I was facing into the north face of Penavan. And at that point, I started to pull out of it, but I knew I couldn't. I knew I, knew I was losing too much height that the, the ground was coming up at me. And the north face of Penavan is kind of like a hand. And there's, there's like four or five ridges with gullies in between them. And I could see that I was going to impact one of these ridges. And I remember at the last minute, well, it wasn't a minute, but the last fraction of a second, just thinking to myself, so this is how it ends. And it was just an interesting moment. So I've, I've been in a situation where I was pretty positive that the only other the only way I was going to get out of this was was dead. What on one previous occasion in the Alps, and so I, I've I've had that before where it's a so this is how I die moment, and it's unpleasant. But there's also kind of strange serenity at that time. You, you're relatively accepting of it, and so I, I I hit bum first. It was my bum that hit the the the, the cliff or the yeah, the ridge, and I bounced. So I didn't glance. I, I hit it and bounced back, which the human body isn't meant to do at 50 odd miles an hour. And 
subsequently found out that I bounced back and I then I fell vertically. So I, I remember as I hit, all four of my limbs kind of went out straight as I bounced back. I remember seeing that as I somersaulted over and I fell nine meters. So that's quite a long way to fall down vertically and then hit the ground and started to tumble. And I knew the profile of that mountain and as I started to tumble, I was still kind of loosely conscious. I remember thinking, well, I'm going to come out the bottom of this. And that's like two or 300 meters away. So I'll, I'll be in several pieces by, by the time I come out the bottom. And then I stopped. I, I got snagged. Um, the, the, the gullies are kind of stepped. And yeah, I, I, I snagged on one of the steps. My parachute must have, must have got snagged. Um, so then I set about trying to sort myself out. And my my brother got down to me seven minutes later, which is a feat of superhuman athleticism to have made it down that face on foot in that amount of time with one hand because his other hand was on the phone to Mountain Rescue <laughs> at the time. But as I said, he was a much better athlete than I was. Um, and, and he got to me and he was on the phone to Mountain Rescue and I said, don't call them yet. I might be able to walk out of here. And he said, I don't think that's going to happen, Niall. <laughs> And indeed, he was right. So long story short, because there's a hell of a lot which, <laughs> which happens. Uh, I had broken five vertebrae, one of which was, in the words of the surgeon, obliterated. So it had exploded. There was nothing left. In the words of the radiographer, it was indistinguishable from the surrounding tissue which is not a good thing when bone and tissue look the same on an x-ray. But yeah, the x-ray wasn't any use for me, but CT scan and MRI, they could see exactly what had happened. And I had, so my L1 vertebra, the, the first lumbar underneath your ribs, um, that one is gone. L2 was, was fractured. And then I five, three of my thoracic, so much higher up, were broken. Um, and T5 was quite unstable. Um, so that meant I had to be in a neck collar for the next three months, um, just because you can't really risk an unstable fracture uh, at chest height. So there's, a lot, there's a lot of your body beneath that. So I, I'd had a yeah, really serious uh, skeletal trauma, but then also a spinal cord injury as a result of the break at that L1 level. So everything from L1 down was now affected by the fact that the spinal cord had been crushed because the, the vertebrae had, had exploded burst and fractured but then also displaced laterally as well so um l1 and l2 were no longer in perfect alignment they were now outside so the tip of my um, of my spinal cord um the corda equina and the bit just above that were crushed and at that stage they didn't know how bad that wound was so i was told while i was lying there when they first looked at the ct scans looking very worried you have to be prepared that you may never walk again. And that's an interesting thing for a person with my kind of background <laughs> to hear. Um, but I, I reconciled myself to it straight away. And I remember saying to the guy that told me that, I said, that's all right, I've had an awesome life. And I remember thinking at that time, I don't want to end up in a wheelchair, but if I do end up in a wheelchair, I will rock that chair. <laughs> I'll do some great things in that, in that wheelchair. And if, if, I, if I do lose the ability to use my legs, at least I'm still cognizant. I can still have conversations and, uh, and still enjoy the world. And I've got these great memories, all these awesome trips that I can look back on. You can still do a lot out of a wheelchair. Um, so I was reconciled to it really quickly and spent the next 38 days in hospital, during which point I learned to walk again, 
ish, <laughs> not very well. And then I was released after 38 days. I was still pretty buggered for the next two weeks after that. Like really not well at all. Um, really struggling, <laughs> really struggling, but just starting to walk slightly further distances each time. I remember that first walk outside and seeing swallows and all that type of stuff was just wonderful. And then 15 weeks after the accident, decided I wanted to walk back up the top of Penavan. It took a while, <laughs> as you can imagine, but with both my brothers, so Finn, who was with me, and Rory, uh, my other brother, we walked up the top of Penavan with the mountain rescue guy that had been there to come and rescue me, Mark Jones, and the helicopter that flew me out came and landed on top and came to say hello, which was wonderful. And that was a nice kind of full stop under the, uh, under the accident. Yeah, God. And has, what's the long-term implication? Long-term implication is that I have a spinal cord injury and live with the consequences of that. So my calves are essentially non-existent and provide more or less no help for my locomotion at all. My hamstrings are operating at probably about 50%. So the, the, the medial part of my hamstrings, the inside, it's relatively normal, but the Biceps femoris, the outside part of the hamstring, is basically atrophied. My glutes are pretty badly atrophied as well. Um, there's very little function in them, or yeah, quite significantly less. So it just means that my quads do a hell of a lot of work when trying to walk, cycle, run, or any of that. And I would phrase this gently otherwise, but you seem a fairly positive person. What are the literal implications then? I mean, do you, can you run? Can you ski? Yes, to all of the above, but with caveats. So I went for a run this morning. Um, it was, so the, the most significant impacts are the fact that I can't relax my bladder to take a pee. And when you, when, when you take a pee, you, you relax and, and your bladder sphincter relaxes and you have a pee. I can't do that. So I have to use a, a catheter each time. So I have intermittent catheters. So anytime I need a pee, I go and I open a bag, get this little tube, pop that up, and that's how I have a pee. I can't tell when I need a crap. And that can be consequential. <laughs> so I don't always need a crap, of course, but there are times when I do, and I won't know. So I, I just have to assume before any activity that I do need one. Because the last thing you want to do before going to the gym is is, is go start doing some squats on, on, on a full ass. <laughs> so, and and I, I don't know when my bowel is full, ready to go. So, so I have to make the assumption that it is. So if I'm going to go on a run or go for a cycle or do some push-ups or anything, go to the loo first, just, just to make sure. So those are the most significant impacts, I suppose, is that I don't have bladder or bowel control and have to manage those quite closely. But I'm getting pretty good at that. Um, I was not very good at that to begin with. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time pooing your pants as a as an early stage spinal cord injury <laughs> patient. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, anyway, uh, for, for another day. But, but yeah, so that, that, that's that's quite consequential. And then on the more kind of standard stuff in terms of walking, skiing, running, um, all that type of stuff. It was a year before I first went mountain biking again, and I f fully kitted out with as many protective <laughs> devices as I could, just in case I fell off. Two years till I next climbed, so two years to get back to the climbing. Well, bear in mind, I was climbing three or four times a week 
before my accident. So it was a massive part of my life. And two years till I next climbed. And that felt surprisingly normal. Because even though I, I, I can't stand on my points, you can still smear. Because my, my, my calves can't support me. Um, but it turns out you can actually smear on almost anything. Unless you're on really, really steep, where you're having to push away with your toes, basically everything else is a smear. Most people just choose to engage their calves. I don't have that choice, so I smear everything. So that was two years. It was two and a half years to first ski, and that was hard, because turns out, turns out your hamstrings and calves actually do quite a lot when you're skiing. <laughs> yeah, haven't realized, um, but they do. And that felt great. It was three and a bit years till I first ran, so three years and three months till I first tried running, and it's really inefficient. I was I was a good runner before. I was I was fit and just a natural easy runner. F felt felt really comfortable running. Loved running, and yeah, you know, I never I never actually timed myself over five k or ten k. But but knowing knowing what kind of pace I used to run, I would have been under twenty minutes for five k before my accident. When I first timed myself over five k, this is about just under a year ago now. So four four years after my accident. It was to the day actually, sixth um, of May. I did twenty nine minutes and fifty one seconds, or whatever it was. So, 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 so basically thirty minutes. Over the subsequent six months of running a bit more consistently in the summer, I've got that down to just over twenty seven minutes. So that's still that's slow by running standards, but for me, I am blowing so hard <laughs> to to keep up that kind of pace. It's because my calves do nothing and my hamstrings do very little. And so to propel me forwards running is unbelievably difficult. It just takes so much energy, um, which is bloody awkward. <laughs> and it's not great when, when walking either. I feel slow. I was, I was a very quick walker before and strong walker, loved walking. Like a PhD was in really, really mountainous environment. I would blast through. I really struggle with that now. And I, I've joined the mountain rescue team uh, as, a, as a result of all, of all this. And... I, I'm fit enough to pass their fitness test, but not by much. <laughs> and that, yeah, that annoys me a bit, knowing that I would have been in the kind of top two or three fittest in the team pre-accident, whereas now I, I'm, yeah, certainly bottom two thirds of uh, fitness in the team, but not a liability on the hill at least. Well, I mean, I've said this already, but you seem incredibly positive. Are you honestly? Have you made? peace with it as much as you seem to have as much as you can because i'm still very open about the fact that many aspects of this have made my life worse but it's the situation i find myself in and I, what i was reconciled to was that this is my situation i remember hearing a, a, an amazing interview with uh, a rugby player former wasps international who broke his neck uh, uh, diving into a swimming pool and he's got back into doing things like like mountaineering. He's got worse spinal cord injury than I do. And it's quite remarkable what he's doing. He's climbed Mont Blanc and he's been out to the Himalayas and that type of stuff. He's doing some really amazing things. And I remember hearing him say that if he could t wind the clock back, he would still dive into that pool on that day and have that accident for his life to then be the way it is. I would not do the same. <laughs> I would not fly off that mountain uh, because... My life has been, I've been very fortunate in my life since that accident. And yes, I'm very positive, but that's, I'd say, making the best of a situation that is suboptimal. 
I would far rather have full function of my asshole if I could. <laughs> I would like to be able to run really easy. I'd like to be the, in the top two or three fittest in the mountain rescue team. None of that's possible because of my circumstance. But I've got to live with that, with my decision. And there's, there's no point crying over spilled milk. Suck it up, as they say. Do you have bad days? Psychologically, not really. I have occasional frustrations. I, again, I might be going <laughs> too much for the listeners. <laughs> you can always edit it out. Um, jogging gets your bowels moving. So if I jog for any more than about 20 minutes, it's essentially inevitable that something in my bowel will, will make its way out. Basically inevitable. The longest I've been able to go without happening is half an hour, and that was just, just by luck. So I'm trying to work with a company, I'm approaching them literally now, to develop something that stops that happening. Because things that exist on the market don't work. It, st it still happens. So if I want to go for a jog, which I do, I have to basically live with the fact that I'll come back, I'll wear a sanitary towel because there's no point not, but I'll come back having crap myself. And that's, that's frustrating, of course. That you never feel great about yourself when you've got a poo in your pants. <laughs> I think that's, that's a lesson for life. But, but I'm, I'm pretty well reconciled to the fact that this just is my reality. And I, I would like to try and work around that reality to find a way of, of managing that. Because at the moment, that stops me being able to train up for a marathon because if I crack myself within half an hour of what would be a four or five hour marathon for me, that's by the end of five hours, that's going to be horrendous. <laughs> no one's going to want to be near me. <laughs> it's, it'd be cruel for everyone else. It'd be unpleasant for me. So I, w I want to be able to work with the company to be able to develop something that enables me to run for longer. But if they can't, they can't. Um, but yeah, so bad days, that type of stuff is frustrating. Uh, sometimes I get my bladder stuff wrong and like ladies that have had, uh, had children, uh, if I sneeze, sneeze is never good for me. Um, so if I haven't been to have a pee for a while and then I get a sneeze, that's not great. So you don't feel great about yourself with a wet patch, but I'm pretty reconciled to it. I'm, I'm almost, well, not almost, I'm so shocked by the positive way that you look at it that it almost feels insincere but i know it's not if that makes sense i yeah. i don't i just i'm impressed and amazed i don't know how you've done it and it's you know gets cheesy sort of tim ferris territory but i find it really inspiring you know because you i have days where i think oh god you know this that i'm slow you know i i'm a i'm a very bad but very keen runner um mm. i fall in the same category as you i i'm you know oh well you say you're not a very good athlete i'm a terrible athlete you know, I, I follow talented people around for a living, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. I, I don't think I meant it to be that way. I was just, I was, yeah. And it wasn't really a conscious thing. It wasn't as if I was like, right, this is how I'm going to approach it. But it, it was just, just automatic. Like, I remember that, that response to the surgeon that it's all right. I've led a great life. I've had an awesome life. That, that was just, that just, it was immediate. It was, it was how I wanted to respond. It just, 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 just came out. So that I did, didn't think it through. Um, bloody, but unbowed, I think is, is the phrase that, that Tennyson would say. Um, yeah, very bloodied, <laughs> but still unbowed. <laughs> Ace. Right. Well, I suppose, uh, has, did the accident then create a scenario by which you focused more on the conservation? Did it put the adventure on the back seat, or is that inaccurate? 
I think the accident just came at a time when I started to really prioritize the conservation anyway. It may well have hastened that process, but I didn't have any specific plans. My brother and I would have wanted to go out and replicate our Greenland expedition doing more combination of ski mountaineering with, with flying. We would have done that a little bit more, I'm sure. But you, those trips would only have been quick anyway. We're talking two, two or three weeks just because of managing the rest of our lives. So it, it came at a time when anyway, I was starting to focus on conservation as being, being my real priority. But I, I, I want big expeditions to be a part of my future. I'm, I'm adamant about this. And one of the things that will be interesting to me is how I manage my bladder and bowel in the Arctic. Because the, the, the big trip that I most want to do is to Baffin, to climb Asgard, and to do various other adventures around Asgard in, in the Cumberland Basin. Because um, that, that whole place is part of my family history, and I feel that quite acutely. And it's obviously just a playground. Look at it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Why would you not want to go there? So I, we're very much, my brother and I, very much intending to go and climb Asgard by the original route, the Swiss route, as it's known. So it was two Swiss guys that were with my grandfather that, that, that climbed it, including the first Swiss man to climb Everest a few years later. We'll do the Swiss route. And then who knows, maybe the Scott route as well, which is, uh, I think it goes at E1 or E2, which for my brother would be a cakewalk and... Uh, I, I might be able to follow. Otherwise, Jumars are a great addition to, to any climber's backpack. Uh, so if it comes to it. So, yeah, I'm adamant that we do that. But then managing my bladder and bowel in the Arctic, even in the summer, will be a challenge. I'm still interested in, in polar hauling again as, as a possibility. I'm not set on it because it's, it's not as interesting as other expeditions, really. <laughs> but you get some amazing places and it's... Get to spend a lot of time just looking at this at the horizon, which you don't get to do in many other places. So, so, very little else is all you do. Well, if you like the snow, you can ski and you understand the wind. I don't know if you've ever done any kiting, but that's the place to be. Uh, done a tiny bit of kiting with our speed wings, and it worked really well. Just yeah, to get back from having flown flown off some mountains, to get back to our camp, we just put the wings up as kites and ski along. It worked amazingly well. So I, I, I know that's an option, and I've seen the trips that Leo's done and stuff, and. Eric McNair and those guys, and there's some really amazing trips to be done with with kites. So that's an option. Managing bladder and bowel in those circumstances will be, will be difficult, but it's something that that I'm I'm wanting to do, and I'm also incredibly keen to introduce my daughter Phoebe to expeditioning as well, and that I'm a part of that. Not not that I'm remote and just kind of pushing her along the way, but that she and I do these things together, and so I, I still see expeditions small and large, as a really important and exciting part of my future. But right now, 39, kind of in your professional prime, I'm really focused on, on my conservation work and having as positive an impact I can on the world around us, trying to stop people destroying the planet <laughs> at a small level, like, like I do in Nussport Rescue in the park, stopping individual poachers, and then at a larger level, influencing governments and making them make the right decisions about conservation and where to prioritize funding on a global scale. And for me, I can give so much energy to that at this stage in my life that I should be doing that. And I'm, I'm really enjoying being able to focus on that at the moment. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you, I mean, obviously the challenge is vast and significant and it's incredibly complex. Do you think we are winning? You are winning? I'd say the tide is just turning on quite a lot of these existential threats to humanity. The penny dropped on climate change in 2019. Up until that point, denialists would be ridiculed by most of us, but they still had certain amounts of data and there was this sort of bit of a fog of doubt in some ways that, that, that there was an element of pseudo-credibility that they might be able to cling on to might i'm being generous to them but from 2019 onwards you are classifying yourself in the same bracket as flat earth geographers and creationists if you are a climate change denier and that understanding has permeated the whole of society really it seems in the last two years like when you wake up and in the first two or three days of 2020 australia is on fire and then later on in the summer, the Arctic is on fire. You can no longer get away with saying, oh, it's just the weather. It is not the weather, it is climate, and we are doing this to the planet. So one of the biggest sea changes in trying to make the world a better place has been an acceptance that the world is struggling as a result of our activities. I think what we witness in a lot of populist politics recently is that if you manage to convince people of something that's untrue, then you can convince them of absolutely anything. Like religions have been doing this for a very long time. <laughs> if you can convince someone to believe absurdities, you can convince someone to commit atrocities. And that's been happening in terms of our treatment of the planet for a very long time. If you just convince people that, don't worry, nothing's happening, then they'll carry on investing in, in fossil fuels. They'll, they'll carry on using single-use plastics and all of these tiny little things that we can all change. They'll carry on eating five meals, five meat meals a day uh, or, or whatever it is that they're doing. And yet all of these little things that we can all do as individuals to, to make a difference, people now realize that they can. And I think that's a big change. It's people no longer thinking it's too big for me to have, a, have an impact. They've realized that they too can make a difference. And you're seeing this at all levels, in the public, in civil society, and, and in government. And I remember for quite a few years, I've been really frustrated with fellow graduates of mine doing biological sciences or uh, geographical sciences that then go and work in banking, or they go and work for the oil sector. And they say, oh, it's, it's all right, I'm just doing it for now, make a bit of money, and then I'll, I'll come back in, in my 40s and donate to charity. And they, they won't. But they, they, they've basically forgotten that their labor is powerful. And that if you do not donate your labor to damaging industries, those industries will have to change because labor works two ways. You've got job availability and you've got job willingness. 
And if people are not willing to do damaging jobs, then those jobs that are available will change. And I worried that this wasn't pervasive enough, that not enough people realize that their labor is a valuable and a powerful force. But then I, I caught the back end of an interview on Radio 4 recently, CEO of one of the big, big oil companies, saying that they've had to change their marketing strategy to emphasize that they're looking to go carbon neutral by 2050, because people were refusing to apply for their jobs otherwise. And that is massive. When the next generation comes through and they're refusing to work for Shell, because Shell have been pillaging the planet for, for the last two generations, Shell will change their model because they're still wanting to make money and, they're real, and they need employees to do that. If you refuse to be an employee and enough people refuse to be an employee, they will shift their model. And that's starting to happen. So I'm, I'm really positive that, that that shift has happened in, in public consciousness, government and corporate acceptance, because <laughs> they've known for a while, they just haven't accepted it, the reality that they have to do something about it. And now you're seeing parties putting climate at the very front, forefront of their manifestos, you're seeing corporates putting climate at the forefront of their marketing and their recruitment strategy. So that's really positive. And then COVID-19 hits. And COVID-19 slapped people in the face with the fact that our relationship with nature is broken and has an existential threat, poses an existential threat to human societies as well. COVID-19 came from a breakdown in conservation. However you want to look at it, it was an animal in China in some way, probably a bat, that was intermingling with another animal in a, in a market, possibly a pangolin, possibly something else that should not have been in a way that was highly stressful and allowed for the shedding of viruses the transmission of this, this disease from one species into another, then into people. And that has shut down the planet and is going to cause $10 trillion of damage, give or take, because of a breakdown in conservation. If, if our relationship with the natural world were better, pandemics would not be such a threat. The, the spillover frequency, the number of diseases coming out of wildlife into people has quadrupled in 50 years at the same time as our interface with nature has massively increased because of deforestation, intensive agriculture, intensive wildlife trade, both legal and illegal, and the way we treat the natural world. And COVID-19 has shown people that if we continue to treat wildlife in that way, nature will shut us down <laughs> as, it, as it has. So it's made us reassess that the Chinese have essentially shut down their wildlife food markets. There are still loopholes, and they are significant loopholes, but that shift is very significant. And we're now starting to see the UK government accept the fact that this came from a breakdown in conservation, and we need to start investing in protecting nature. And that's what I've been trying to bang at the door of government for the last few years, saying is that in our domestic and our foreign policy, we should be putting the environment first, because you cannot have functioning human societies in a planet that is devoid of wildlife, because those are deserts. You can't have human societies in a desert. It, do it doesn't work very well. So we need to have strong functioning ecosystems supported by domestic and foreign uh, and international uh, policy in order to have functioning societies. So we need to be investing in nature. Do you think we will? Yeah, I think this year it was, we'll see major commitments. We have um, Coalition for Biological Diversity, the big CBD meeting 
um, which is kind of the equivalent of like, the UN climate change thing, but for biodiversity, that's happening this year in China. I think that we'll see a lot of commitments there. The WEF, like the, the World Economic Forum, the, the, the suits in Davos that, that have been yeah, clinking their champagne glasses and, and toasting global capitalism, they are now focusing heavily on nature positive investments. They, they've done multiple papers in the last year emphasizing the, the threat to our global financial markets of a loss in biodiversity and how we must be putting back to nature and, and investing in nature positive um, businesses. So when you've got the suits in Davos focusing on this as a priority, the argument has now been won, at, le at least on the, uh, from the West. When you've got China promising to go carbon neutral by 2060, that's positive. I'd love them to bring it forward. <laughs> 2030 would be nice. They say they're going to peak before 2030 on their emissions. So I, I think this year we will see some major, major moves. We've got the climate conference in Glasgow later, later this year. Um, we've got the Biden administration, which will be re-entering the Paris Agreement on January the 21st. Fingers crossed. They've put some really serious people on it. So we are seeing change. The best time to have done this was 40 years ago. The second best time is now, and we're, it's now that imminence, that impending danger, and the existential threat that biodiversity loss and climate change pose to human societies is now so obvious to all of us that change is going to happen. Yeah, and so much of what you've said, you know, preceding this part of the conversation is relevant because it's the waking up and saying, okay. I might not be able to walk again, in which case I'm going to boss the wheelchair. You know, it's here we are. Here we are. This is what we've got. This is what's going to happen. We have an opportunity to change it and fix it. So let's go. I guess it's that simple, right? It is. Uh, yeah. Press the button to start. And we can all press the button to start in our lives straight away. The easiest thing to do, just eat a little bit less meat. You don't have to become vegan. Just, just eat a bit less meat. That already has a massively positive impact on the planet. Cycle instead of driving to the shops. It makes you fitter. It's great. It reduces, it reduces your emissions. Buy local produce. It's good for the planet. It's good for you. You will be healthier if you're eating a, a, a cabbage grown locally than you will buying a dragon fruit from Thailand. All, all of these things, tiny little changes that will make you healthier and make the planet better. And then you look at slightly bigger things. Don't vote for people that are trashing the planet. <laughs> I can't say it more obviously. Uh, I think one of the things like, like, like many of this, with, with the barrier to entry, like we talked about earlier with expeditioning, there's a barrier to entry for political discourse as well and political activism. Your local MP, it's literally their job to represent you in Parliament. So go and write to them or go and see them. Like it's, it's, they, they have to listen to you. It's their job. And if, what I've found with speaking to a lot of MPs over the last few years, is they are not aware of most things happening in the world. They are so focused on whatever's in front of them at the time. If you bring them an issue, They'll be like, oh, bloody hell, I didn't realise that was the case. Let's do something about it. And so take your issues, take your concerns to your local MP. It's very easy. And it's literally their job to represent you. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's maybe that's part of what's happening is we're now bridging that gap in our own um, lack of knowledge as well. You know, we're waking up to it and people like myself, people like, you know, my wife and I sit there and we watch, you know, watch you in Perfect Planet and everybody else. And we we listen, we understand and we think, oh, okay, you know, bamboo toothbrushes are great and everything, but maybe it's not quite enough and we could be doing a little bit more. We can all do a little bit more, but what I think 
people are worried about is that they have to do so much, whereas you don't need to do that much. We, it's just little things all make a difference along the way. And if one of the things I think is most important is that when people do start to make changes, is that they talk about those changes with real confidence to their friends and their family. Because a lot of people will be intimidated by making a change, but if they find out that actually their, their, their friends made this change and it's been great for their life, right? they, they started cycling to work and they love it, they're fitter, they're feeling better, they're, they're getting on with their wife way, way better, all of this type of stuff. Uh, if you talk with confidence about these changes you're making in your life, you'll have a really positive impact on the people around you. Well, of course. And it's almost like it seems, you know, it's almost obvious, but yet we find ourselves getting locked away and not getting out as much as we should. So how does all of this translate through to your work directly and specifically? Yeah, so my work with National Park Rescue is twofold, really. There's the short-term focus, which is to resuscitate national parks that cannot cope with poaching. And that means visiting a country, identifying a park that's really struggling, building a team that can change it, implementing policies that, that reduce the poaching, allow wildlife to come back and all that type of stuff. And that, that's, that, that's really important. And it's, it's very exciting, like being out on patrol, arresting people, being on foot with elephants, all this type of stuff. That, that, that's, that's deeply exciting. But then there's, there's the other side, which is that more holistic side. So engaging other organizations in trying to promote uh, environmental policies, engaging government in trying to promote environmental policies, trying to, to nudge industry and government to, to stop having a, such a negative impact on the planet. And that's, that's much harder to do. Um, so I've been banging on the door of Parliament a lot. I've given three speeches in Parliament in the last two years, specifically talking about putting the environment at the heart of domestic and international policy. I stay in touch with my local MP, as I was saying everyone should. I, I write to my MP whenever I'm doing anything that I think might be of interest to them, say, listen, this is what I'm doing. I, I, I think you should know what your constituents are up to. So I think that's important. I stay in touch with some of the ministers in, in government and just trying to make sure that the British government, because that's the government I can affect, is making sure that conservation is on their mind, on their radar at all times. And that's that's a challenge because they're thinking about lots of things. And at the moment, they're thinking about the fact that our country is shut down because of COVID. So I've tried to remind them that the reason we have COVID is because of a breakdown in conservation. That I mean, and I, I did not know that. If, you know, when you explain it, it, it's not that it becomes obvious, but it becomes clear. So, God, it's going to get deeply political. So I apologize. You can find where your political line is and stop there. Why, why does, you know, ivory poaching exist? Ivory poaching exists today because people, principally in China, but in some other countries as well, want to be able to display ivory trinkets. And it's as simple as that. The, there's no medicinal value. There's, there's no even supposed medicinal value to ivory. Ivory is solely a decorative ornament. And ivory poaching exists because people want to demonstrate their wealth by having a bit of ivory in their house. Simple as that. It almost deserves the long muted pause of mm -hmm. discuss. So, so rhino poaching exists for slightly different reasons. It also exists for status because rhino horn is really expensive. It's about $60,000 per kilo, which is a lot more expensive than cocaine. So if you have rhino horn and you, well, it gets used as an aperitif sometimes. So if you, let's say I was throwing a little bit of a party for my friends 
and I grate a little bit of rhino horn into their gin and tonic at the start of the party, that would show me off as being very, very affluent. And wow, this is a guy I must know. So rhino horn is used to de- as a demonstration of, of immediate wealth, but it is also used by some people in, uh, as, as, a me- as a medicine, even though it has been off the official pharmacopoeia of medical products in ch- traditional Chinese medicine since the early 1980s, it is still used by some people as a medicine. A lot of that is in Vietnam, uh, down to a single politician that said he took rhino horn and it helped cure his cancer back in 2006. So that, that's problematic. So yeah, poaching for different species is, exists for different reasons. You might have heard that pangolins are the most poached mammal on earth at the moment. We're looking at at least 100,000 coming out of Africa every single year and going over to Southeast Asia. Most of those are consumed for traditional Chinese medicine, but there's also uh, other reasons for consumption as well, including food. So there's, there's various reasons why things are poached across the world. Ivory is solely as a decoration, which is shallow beyond belief. Yeah, it, that's exactly the word. It's shallow and it, yeah, barbaric, but... Um... It shows a level of, I mean, perhaps it's my my bias, but when I think poaching, I think elephants. You know, obviously there's everything else that goes on, but elephants are at the forefront of, you know, the news and the thinking. Elephants, rhinos, pangolins, you've mentioned, what else is going on in the world? I think it's really important that people do realise that poaching goes way beyond just your charismatic species. The poaching of eels threatens eel populations across Europe. Eel smuggling is massive business in in Western Europe. There's a a huge thing. So bushmeat coming out of West Africa, and this is to come back to the pandemic risk, an estimated eight tonnes of bushmeat, that's mainly monkeys and little antelopes, goes through Charles de Gaulle Airport in France every week coming out of West Africa. Multiply that across all the airports in Europe, and you have a significant tonnage of bushmeat coming into Western Europe every single year from the very countries where Ebola has been a major issue. So but the bushmeat industry is a genuine pandemic risk. Imagine you have an Ebola outbreak in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris as a result of a breakdown in conservation in Liberia. This is, this is where conservation becomes uh, a lot more interesting than most people necessarily give it credit for. But poaching is an issue all across the world. We're losing the the most threatened species of porpoise is the vaquita porpoise, which lives off the coast of Mexico, which is being killed as bycatch because the Chinese have an insatiable desire for toto abo, which is a a swim bladder from a type of fish that lives out there. And these poor porpoises are caught as bycatch uh, in the nets that are catching these, these fish for the swim bladders that the Chinese are paying crazy prices for. So you've got Poaching for one thing, which is causing the extinction of another thing. It's, it's this knock-on effect. As you say, you pull the string and everything falls to pieces. But poaching happens of all kinds of things at all levels. And I think it's really important that we don't be sanctimonious about this and just think this is happening elsewhere, that this, this, this is an African problem or this is an Asian problem. It's, it's massively a Western European problem as well, both as consumers, things like ivory and, uh, and, and rhino horn and, and bushmeat, etc., are, are consumed in significant quantities in, in, the, in the West, but then also as participants as well, either as traffickers or as, or as active poachers. We, we still have people that go badger baiting and hair coursing, and that's, that might seem as a bit kind of parochial and a bit of fun, but actually that's decimating our landscape, and it's, it's horrendously cruel and has no place in the 21st century. 
It's very interesting. I mean, I, I one of the podcasts I've released is around um, a very, very good friend of mine who's made a film about the last English poacher in inverted commas, and he is mm. he's uh, poaching um, pheasant from. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, that's maybe that's beer conversation about whether or not he should or shouldn't do that land ownership, um, his right to hunt what he eats. It's complicated, right? Is the point it I'm is. making. It's really complicated. Very complicated. And when you get a Brit working in Zimbabwe telling a Zimbabwean that they can't hunt an elephant to sell to a Chinese person, the politics are quite considerable. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then, but this, and please just tell me if I'm wrong about this. This is, you know, naive kind of hunting for information. If we stop the intrigue and if we stop the desire, we stop the trade, right? Essentially, demand creates the supply. And one of the reasons why conservationists such as myself are against legalizing, re-legalizing the trade in rhino horn and and ivory is that the demand if it was legal would be so high that domestic populations couldn't supply that so the poaching would escalate and we've seen that when there have been legal one-off sales of ivory uh, to china and japan in the late 90s and the and around 2009 2010 it saw a spike in poaching happening in africa in the two or three years afterwards because suddenly people thought ivory is cool again Whereas if ivory becomes taboo or rhino horn becomes taboo and the demand goes down, then poaching won't be such an issue. The next issue you will then get is human wildlife conflict, which is another issue entirely because it's not, animals aren't only killed for their ivory. They're also killed because they're a nightmare to live next to. And it's, it's easy for us to say living next to pheasants and badgers and the occasional muntjac deer. But if you live next to lions or elephants or tigers, Having your children playing out in the front yard has slightly different con- uh, connotations when you've got those types of animals around. Or an elephant come through and trash your entire year's crop in a single night. And so poaching is a major problem, but human-wildlife conflict is also a central issue that needs to, be, needs to be tackled. And for me, it's one of the biggest barriers to conservation at the moment is human-wildlife conflict. I mean, this is getting... I'll, I'll, it'll start getting silly if I go down this route, but... Yeah. How the hell do you stop people from killing elephants if they're in their, you know, in their crop? Try and incentivize them to have elephants around. So nature positive payments, I think, is really important. If you pay people to have high biodiversity in their in their vicinity, then that encourages them to do so. Some organizations pay people reparations as well. So if you lose crop or if you lose cattle to a to a lion, then you're paid reparations. But that doesn't necessarily encourage people to conserve them in the same way they just want that vengeance that oh, that, that money and they and that they're still not positively reinforced to have wildlife there whereas if you're actually paying people to have wildlife in their in their area that's the way to go about it and for me that's going to be has to be one of the central focuses of, of global finance over the next few years is is paying people to protect landscapes and the wildlife that lives in it we, we need these we need forests to have rain we need forests so that we don't have horrendous flooding so that we don't have deserts uh, Brit- britain's interest in this abroad is unfortunately rooted in racism because they don't want to have massive migrations of people coming across the mediterranean from africa but if we're not paying for forests to be regenerated in in 
in the Horn of Africa, those people will have to leave anyway because you won't, you can't live in 50 degrees centigrade year round. So they'll be coming across. So British foreign aid, a lot of it is like, right, well, we won't keep the Africans in Africa. So, so, so what can we do? And the best thing to do is to invest in forests or invest in landscapes. Yeah. And again, it's complicated because, you know, in Britain, obviously we pay, we pay people per square meter they own up in the highlands, et cetera. And you know, we're doing that on grouse moors. Why the hell can't we do it overseas to protect rather than to destroy? Totally. And that will change and hopefully change on both fronts. Hopefully the grouse moor owners will no longer get paid for that absurd, absurd law. Uh, yeah, we're getting deep into politics now. Yeah, I know for sure. Which, you know, hey, why not? Um, yeah, it's Friday afternoon. If, if, we're not, if we can't just get deep into politics and chew the fat, then what's the point? Um, so do you... Ah, let's. I think we'll go slightly darker before we brighten it up again. What's gonna go wrong with the poaching scene? I mean, it can't all just be on the on the getting better front. No. So, what's gonna go wrong in the poaching scene is that populations are gonna continue to rise, and disposable income is gonna continue to rise because your biggest consumers of essentially anything are wealthier people, and the fact that in Southeast Asia in particular, which are the largest consumers of wildlife products, you have burgeoning economies. Vietnam, that economy is booming. China, that economy is booming. So you've got a huge number of people entering the affluent middle class that suddenly have disposable income that they want to splash on things that are seen as desirable. And those desirable things are emptying our planet of wildlife. And so for me, the, the, the biggest risk to wildlife at the moment is economic prosperity in in many in many of the consumer nations which is quite an interesting one because we want these we want places to be prosperous of course in the same same in the uk but we need to reduce the uh, the consumption of prosperous people and that, that starts at home uh, we have to be really conscious that here in the uk we have, to, we have to be very careful about how we consume how you interact with the world around you the people the animals uh, every, and everything else and reducing your consumptive footprint i think is vital because that's the issue uh, like if you if you change your mobile phone every six months that mobile phone's going to come from somewhere it's coming from a mine in congo is where it's coming from think about the knock-on impact of that so just yeah reduce reuse recycle as they say do all of that and we've got to be really careful not to preach to people in foreign places about changing their lifestyle while we're still driving an SUV and changing the phone every six months and yeah, eating hamburgers twice a day. We have to be very careful not to be too sanctimonious. For sure. I think, yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point. And also to not feel too, you know, we've all got to live happy lives, right? I mean, we, we're not going to get up and go to work and try and save the world if we're not happy. No. And yeah, I've said this to friends of mine, like when, People can accuse me of being a hypocrite because I fly uh, to places and because I do sometimes eat meat and, and all of this. And I say, well, in life, we've got choices. I, I, I could live in a barrel and eat what falls in, or I can live a completely opulent, opulent life of total consumption or somewhere on the spectrum between them. And it's up to us entirely where we exist on that spectrum. And, and sometimes you give and you take in, in your activities. But I think being conscious that we are consumers and, and that everything we do has has an knock-on impact i think it's the most important thing because that, that that's the that's the beginning it's understanding that you are having an impact and then trying to reduce it comes afterwards yeah no that's a really good point i think for me it's often it often feels like 
consideration is an excellent place to start rather than, you know, Love Island and a pizza. Maybe let's, you know, have Love Island once every two weeks instead and spend that hour thinking about how we're living our lives. I think a big mistake a lot of people make is thinking that living an environmentally conscious and positive way is somehow Puritan. Not in the slightest. As I said earlier, by cycling places, you get fitter, see more nice things. By eating less meat, you reduce your risk of heart attacks. So there's so many positive changes you can make to live a very happy and fulfilled life that just mean you're consuming slightly less. Yeah. So what are the success stories? In, in sort of almost in micro form that you've experienced, you know, in the poaching world? So for our work in Malawi, when we first went there, in nine months, we removed 10,000 snares and gin traps from a single national park, Lewande National Park, and arrested 70 poachers, started the reformation of the country's wildlife laws, and then handed that park on to another organization who have subsequently reintroduced lions, uh, got elephant population back up enough that that park can now supply other places with elephants. Communities are fully engaged. The wildlife laws have changed. And Malawi is now a beacon for conservation in Africa. And we kind of got that started in 2014. So that was a huge success in a short amount of time. In Zimbabwe, our current operation, in the first two years of being there, elephant poaching went down by 90%. General bushmeat poaching down by 98%. Lion population increased by 40%. Lions breed really fast. So, so if you give them the chance, those populations go up really quickly. So those have been massive successes on that, on that front. But then I, I like to look at kind of the other, the little successes that have happened in order to make those big headlines happen. And for me in Zimbabwe, taking 31 people from living in literal mud huts to working for our team, protecting their own natural heritage, giving them stable jobs, enabling them to feed their families through COVID. That, for me, is, is the most important thing that, that we've done. And as a result of doing that, we've reduced elephant poaching by 90% and all the other things that I talked about. Yeah, we have to be on board with it, don't we? That's the, it has to be for us as well as of us, if that makes sense. Okay, ace. All right, I'm going to start to draw this to a close, which, you know, almost feels a shame, actually. I am going to ask you a couple of final questions. So what um, what worries you? What worries me? God. I suppose I have normal worries and that my family will get sick and all those types of things. Kind of small personal worries that, uh, yeah. So obviously my, my daughter's my biggest focus and I'm very concerned about, about her health, my mum's health. She's 70 and, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I worry that I'm not fit enough or hardworking enough or clever enough. Uh, I get the same imposter syndrome that I'm sure a lot of people get. So I worry about those things a lot. And then on an existential level, I worry that we've waited too late to turn the tide on climate change and biodiversity loss. I don't think that is the case. You're never really too late. We haven't lost everything. It would have been great if we'd done something much, much sooner, but we're doing something now and I'm proud to be a part of that effort, but I'm still worried for what our negligence means for the planet. So yeah, on those three levels, uh, those are where my, my worries lie, I suppose. Do you get angry about it? 
no, I get angry about little things. <laughs> so so I, I, I get angry if I stub my toe. I don't get angry about those those, those bigger things. It's quite interesting. I, I face serious crises with total calm, determination, and laser-like focus. Whereas I face a small crisis, like dropping a mug, with ludicrous anger. <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah, we all well, we cope in different ways, right? Um, what brings you hope? What brings me hope is the fact that I'm lucky enough to do quite a lot of talks in schools and in general interface with, with the younger generation a lot. And I see how hugely engaged they are internationally and in terms of the environment. They, they want the world to be interconnected and they want the world to be a better place. And they want nature to be around. They want to see it. They want to live in it. But they also want it to be around for its own sake. I think the, the big difference of this current young generation of school kids is that they believe in the intrinsic value of nature as opposed to just its extrinsic value, which the previous generation thought of. They thought, what can I get out of nature? Whereas this young generation just thinks that nature belongs there. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a hugely important part of the planet and the planet wouldn't be the same without it. And that gives me hope. Absolutely. Yeah. We're done with conquering. We are done with conquering. Yes. This is not my normal last question. Alas, I have chosen it. But do you think your grandfather would be proud of you? Oh, God. When I first met Doug Scott, the famous mountaineer, for any of your listeners that don't know, who only just died, he died of a brain tumor just, just a few weeks ago. Doug Scott was the first Brit ever to climb Mount Everest. And he did it the hard way. And he was a phenomenal man. Have you met him? I have. He has an impression. He leaves an impression. Leaves a lasting impression. Extraordinary man. When I first met Doug Scott, it was just after I'd rode across the Atlantic and just before I was going to ski across Greenland. And we were both speaking at an event, uh, an adventure event. And I came up to him before his talk and I said, uh, hi, Doug. My name's Niall McCann. I'm Pat and Gillian Baird's grandson. And he looked at me and said, Pat and Gillian Baird. And then he kind of, he got really effusive and started to talk about his time with them. And then we got chatting and I explained the type of thing I like to do in my life. And he said, they would be proud of you. And if Doug Scott says that, then I guess I've got to agree with him. I think you probably do. Ace. Right. Thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Great to talk to you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall, and edited by Kate Bullivant. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or keep in touch on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.com.